Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to U.S.-Uganda Partnership in a Turbulent Region, a conversation with Uganda's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Please welcome Joshua Maservi, Research Fellow for Africa in the Heritage Foundation's Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to this live stream uh, conversation uh, with His Excellency uh, Abu Bakr Odongo, who is the Foreign Minister uh, for the Republic of Uganda. Uh, really, really pleased uh, that you could join us today and appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to have opportunities like this because beyond talking the two of us, many people else get involved in this conversation and I appreciate it so much. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, there's, of course, been many negatives of, of the pandemic and moving to telework, but I think the explosion of sort of online events has been a, a small positive. So we're glad that uh, we're able to reach uh, so many people online today. Yeah, of course, true. It is true. There have been many negatives, but I, but I think one positive about the pandemic is that it has taught us that there are other ways in which we can continue conversation, yeah. apart yeah. from the fiscal one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll give a very brief introduction of you. Um, I encourage our listeners to go uh, look up the Honorable Minister. He's had a fascinating career. Um, something that I did not know about him until recently was that he was one of the uh, original group of um, soldiers uh, who kicked off the um, Ugandan Bush War in the early 1980s uh, with uh, now President Yoweri Museveni. Um, so I hope you write a book someday. I would, I would love to read it. You've had a fascinating life. Uh, you've held a number of uh, ministerial level um, portfolios. Uh, of course, currently you're, you are a Minister of Foreign Affairs. And so our conversation will focus today on Uganda's foreign policy, on its role in a really critical region in Africa, um, an important one to the United States and an important one uh, to Africa, and of course. Uh, so, so I, I want to jump right in because we don't have a lot of time, and there's sure. there's much to discuss. Um, and and let's start with Al Shabaab, if if we could. Sure. So, uh, Uganda, of course, uh, has been fighting this Somali terrorist organization for many years. Um, it was a an original member of the AMISOM uh, peacekeeping operation that uh, has been active uh, in Somalia for well over a decade now. Uh, uh, I mentioned to you earlier, I was actually in Kampala uh, when Al-Shabaab bombed um, two bars um, uh, during the World Cup finals. Uh, I still remember it well, and, and that precipitated an even larger Ugandan intervention into Somalia. Um, so let's fast forward to today. Can you just give us your assessment of the fight against Al-Shabaab? How's it going? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for this opportunity to to be able to share with you our own perspective as to what is going on in Somalia and indeed against Al-Shabaab. I think it is important to, rec to remember and to, to recognize the fact that um, we've been at it since 2007 when we first deployed into Somalia. A very difficult period indeed. But today we can say with a lot of pride and satisfaction that with the assistance of the United States, where we are, we are much better 
than where we were in 2007. But going forward, I think it is important for us to recognize three main things in as far as the fight against al-Shabaab in Somalia is concerned. One, there are military things that we must put into consideration. Two, there are uh, political things that we must continue to co put into consideration. And at this material time, I think there are, is a social problem that is emerging. Militarily, I, I, I think with the transition from AMISUM to ASMIS, to ATMIS, the African Transunion Mission in Somalia, new imponderables have come on board. AMISUM was a peacekeeping mission. ATMIS has a mandate more than peacekeeping and a mandate that enjoins it to be more operational. And by so doing, there are new challenges that have come on board. And along with ATMIS, there is the challenge of taking into cognizance the fact that 24 months down the road, the mission will be closing out of Somalia. The question therefore is, as we do that, what is it in place in Somalia to take, to replace this force which is getting out? So as we speak now, the, one of the challenges is to build capacity of the Somali military force to be able to take the responsibilities of securing their own country and ensuring that what has been achieved is maintained. We think we need to help Somalia uh, address the question of the relationship between the federal forces and the state forces. Mm. That has not yet been very, very clear. And I think we need as quickly as possible to assist the Somalis to do that. That is the question, one question in, in, in as far as the military, military field is concerned. The other question is, by virtue of the new mandate of ATMIS, the new requirements put the soldiers on harm's way in terms of uh, exposure to IEDs, in terms of exposure by virtue of the fact that they are not protected. So we now need to look at what else do we need to protect the, foot, the man on the foot, on the ground. Secondly, what do we need to put in place to improve his capability, his capacity, since it is also required to be more operational than merely peacekeeping. Mm. So these are some of the questions that we must be able to address in the military sector. So we may need the capacity to be able, electronic capacity to deal with the IEDs. We may need uh, armor capacity to protect the soldiers. We may need helicopters to provide better strike capability for the atomies. Politically, there are two questions that we must be able to quickly uh, address. First is the question of the fact that 2018, a constitution was drafted in Somalia. 
as we speak, it has not yet been promulgated. And as a result of that, the question of division of responsibilities between the federal government and the state governments remains something that has not been resolved. And, and I think if we must have a Somali that is peaceful and stable, that question has to be quickly resolved as well. We need to engage with the Somali authorities to be able to help them overcome that challenge. Now, along with that internal problem, the other additional problem that I now see is the involvement of other partners in Somalia. Turkey, Qatar, UAE. They are most welcome. But what I see, and I see as a challenge, is that there is no synergy between these other partners in as far as the Somali question is concerned. And I hope in the very near future, we will get into a conversation in which all of us will be able to build synergies towards building a stable and peaceful Somalia. The third question, which in my view needs to be addressed, is uh, a, 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 the fact that Somalia has had four continuous years of failed rainy season. This in itself has now created the challenge of famine and the challenge of desperation among the population. Hungry people cannot be able to listen to anything else before their stomachs are full. So we must also, going forward, critically look at how we can help them in that sector. Yeah. The, um, as you've rightly said, the, the famine is, is truly terrible. And it's not just Somalia, of course. It's, it's throughout um, other parts of the region as well. I wanted to dig in a little bit on this, this issue of, of the, the political question, which I think you're exactly right about in Somalia. Uh, the tension between the federal government and the federal member states has caused a lot of problems, um, including armed confrontations uh, among various um, politicians' uh, affiliated clans. Uh, there was uh, a famous moment, or maybe an infamous moment, where a Ugandan general actually had to mediate. Um, he was there with Amasom, and he actually mediated um, uh, between some of the, the factions that were facing off. Um, the other uh, challenge we've had is this tension between the president and the prime minister over uh, you know, the, the various roles and responsibilities and rights that come with each office. So are you, do you feel confident that Hassan Sheikh, uh, the, who was just re-selected um, as president, um, can make progress on these political issues, uh, particularly because he was in power, of course, um, uh, once before and had these same sorts of political problems while he was in power. So how do you see the prospects um, tackling these political problems moving forward? I think uh, President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud has got a lot of um, good intentions. Uh, on the last month, he was in Kampala, mm -hmm. uh, and I can speak with confidence because I had an opportunity to have conversations and interactions with him. Uh, I, I think he needs our support. He's very clear about the challenges that he is faced with. He is very clear 
about the limitations that he faces. So I, I, I think I have a lot of confidence. I have a lot of belief that he's a right person at the right time. And using him, assisting him, I believe we can be able to see good progress and good results in Somalia. Hmm. There's currently a major offensive going on against Al-Shabaab, and there's um, there's been some reported successes. Um, I think without without uh, political progress, those battlefield successes will be temporary. Um, an interesting question that, that someone asked me was, has Uganda or Amazon more generally ever considered trying to use the Bantu communities that exist in southern Somalia they're traditionally um, discriminated against and marginalized in Somali society. Have they ever made any outreach to those communities to try to bring them on board with the fight against al-Shabaab? Because it, it seems like you, you'll, you'll need local community support to, to fully push this community or to push this group back. I, I agree with you that the, the fight against al-Shabaab will be in conflict without involvement of the local communities. And I think we should do everything possible to get engaged with the local communities. I think the, the, the problem has hitherto been that Amsum primarily has been in contact with only with the federal authorities. Okay. I, I, and I think we should now begin to see how with the understanding with the federal government, the central government, we can get involved with the state governments in order to be able to build their capacity, particularly bearing in mind that the ex-soldiers are resident in, many, in, in these states, and they have the capacity to be able to organize support and utilize the militias around them. So I, I agree with you that it is important that we must get down to the states, reach out to these veterans who will be able to help marshal militias that can be able to control the ground in the different areas of the federal states. Yeah. Yeah, I think any solution will, will have to heavily involve local forces. That, that seems clear. Um, I want to switch focus to another terrorist group uh, that Uganda is involved in fighting. Um, and this is the sort of strangely named Allied Democratic Forces, ADF. Um, uh, th this group is probably less familiar to our audience than, than a group like Al-Shabaab, but uh, ADF is, is hugely brutal and um, has been active both in Uganda, but now more in, in Eastern DRC. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about what Uganda knows about this group? Because it's, it's fairly shadowy. I feel like we don't have a lot of, of good information on it. What is... Um, uh, its goals, what is its general strength, where does it primarily operate, anything you can, any insights there you can give us. Thank you. Uh, of course, uh, earlier on in the 1995-1996 period, uh, when um, ADF came into the limelight, it was operating out of Western Uganda. But from about 96, 97, 
it's been basically resident in Eastern DRC. Uh, ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces, is a Muslim uh, extremist outfit. Over the years, it's been able to link up with Al-Qaeda, with ISIS. As we speak now, it is basically an ISIS affiliate, but resident in Eastern DRC. Uh, whilst they have been in Eastern DRC, we did not have the opportunity to engage them at the level that we would have desired. They provided us with this opportunity in November last year when they attacked the city of Kampala by way of uh, exploding twin bombs that caused a lot of mayhem and havoc and destruction of property and killing of some people. It gave us the opportunity to have a focus on what needs to be done. Knowing they were in Eastern DRC, we approached the government of DRC to see if we, together with the government of DRC, could get involved in a military operation, hopefully to take out this outfit completely, if we could destroy it, or at least be able to degrade their capacity to create problem or to prescribe the capacity to create problems in the region. As we speak, uh, that intention on our part has been largely achieved. But it's also important to know that at the time when we initially got involved in Eastern DRC, way back in December 2021, the size of this uh, group was something upwards of 2,500 active fighters, many of whom were mainly children who had been abducted, many of whom were actually uh, young people elsewhere who had got conscripted. But as you correctly pointed out, it is acquiring an international nature because what we have now discovered is that the fighters are not entirely Ugandan. They are from other parts of, of the region as well as beyond. Um, the results of the operation that we have been involved in have indicated to us that um, there is now a new evolution in the manner in which they operate. Initially, they were in concentrations, uh, killing, abducting, looting the populations in Eastern DRC. But as a result of the military oppression between ourselves and the forces of DRC, they have now splintered into small groups. And we are looking at how can we now deal with this new phenomenon of terrorists marooning the villages in groups of five, in groups of four, in, group, in, in, in that form. So this is where we are now. But correctly, as you pointed out, this is an Al-Shabaab, rather, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS-related outfit, Muslim in nature, 
extremist in nature based on an Islamic ideology. Hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about it's it's been linked to the group operating in northern Mozambique, also a, a very vicious group um, that kills a lot of innocent people. Uh, could you tell us anything about that relationship and also the relationship, as you mentioned, with ISIS? Um, how close are those, the bonds? Uh, do they exchange fighters? Do they exchange money? Do they exchange messages? Do you have, do you have any sense of, of the strength of the relationship? I think we've been able to establish that there is a firm relationship between ADF and the forces operating in northern uh, Mozambique because we've been able to intercept messages between them. We've been able to arrest couriers in between them. There is also credible evidence, physical and actual, in, in, in considering the relationship between ADF and ISIS, because in the camps that we've been able to capture, we've found literature, we have found writings, we have found evidence of instructors from ISIS. So yes, the relationship is strong and firm. It's not an imaginary relationship. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you mentioned foreign fighters. Uh, so I've seen reports of Tanzanians, for instance, fighting with ADF and, and others. Uh, and you said beyond the region. Yeah. So are there non-Africans fighting? Yes. Okay, from Middle East or? Yes, some, some fighters from the Middle East. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yes. So they, and they probably came from ISIS or were they that's what, that's, recruited independently? That's what we believe. Okay, mm. okay, interesting. Um, great, uh, well, we'll keep moving because there's so much to cover here. Um, Absolutely. So obviously uh, one of perhaps the, uh, most um, uh, important or, or contentious foreign policy issue right now is uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and uh, the terrible war that's, that's been going on for months there. Um, Uganda, uh, there's, there's been a series of, of motions at the United Nations um, that were designed to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Uganda has abstained on, on all three of those. Could you give us a sense of Uganda's perspective on that war, uh, and then uh, give us an idea of, of the reasoning behind Uganda's abstentions on, on those motions. Uh, first of all, we do not agree that um, war is the best way to resolve any conflict. Uh, that goes for the Russia-Ukraine conflict as well. We do not agree that fighting is the best way to resolve any conflict. Our preferred option is should be a negotiation. It should be an engagement uh, between the parties involved in the conflict. It's the basis upon which we view the manner in which we relate with the international community, we relate with everybody else in as far as the conflict between Russia and the Ukraine is concerned. Uganda is an unaligned country. Next year, 2023, Uganda will take the chairmanship of the non-aligned movement. The basic principle of the non-aligned movement is dialogue, 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 
to resolve any conflict in the international arena. So this burden of leadership that we are about to take imposes upon us to demonstrate our leadership of the Nanaline movement and imposes upon us to lead by example. And we, we use that bearing in mind our own principle of engaging in order to be able to seek an avenue for dialogue. This has informed our decisions to abstain because we think in doing that we will be encouraging a, an opportunity for dialogue. Hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. Dialogue is, is far preferable to the, the awfulness of, of the war and the fighting we've had. Um, that principle, though, how does the, the principle of seeking dialogue apply in a situation where there's uh, a clear aggressor on one side who is annexing territory um, and who has reject clearly rejected dialogue and, and begun a war? Um, so, uh, so now calls for dialogue um, seem as though it would potentially be uh, favorable to the Russian perspective on this, where um, they say, well, now we, we've annexed these territories, of which used to be part of sovereign Ukraine. And um, so, sure, we're happy to talk about um, other elements, but um, they've now sort of staked out these maximalist claims. So when you have a clear aggressor and um, uh, a, a party that has rejected dialogue, uh, how does the, the dialogue principle that you just outlined, which is, which is absolutely admirable, how does that apply in that situation? Uh, first of all, uh, talking about uh, boundaries and territories, I think we are ab absolutely agreeable that uh, in Africa, we do not agree with the boundaries that exist among Eastern countries. But we are also cognizant of the fact that to reopen a debate on the boundaries is to open a Pandora box. So we are happy to live with the boundaries as we found them. Uh, similarly, applying that same principle, it would be good if that same understanding could be applied in as far as Ukraine and Russia is concerned. So yes, we do not agree that it is correct for Russia to annex. We do not agree that the method they are using is the correct method. But we also are insistent on the fact that under the circumstances, to continue to deny them the opportunity of engagement may be an avenue for exacerbating this conflict. Because they may have the feeling that, after all, we have been ostracized, we have been left alone. We therefore will be in a position to do anything that we want. We want to believe them, to want to believe that they must continue to be involved and engaged in order for our voice, for our perspectives, in as far as this conflict is concerned, to be listened to and to be heard. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and then final question on this. Is there any action that might change, that, that Russia could take that might change Uganda's um, uh, stance at the UN? So, for instance, 
what are what are the red lines for Uganda um, if Russia used tactical nuclear weapons, for instance, which has been um, you know uh, there's a lot of concern around that possibility right now. Would would that change Uganda's perspective on this? And, and I think for us we are we are certainly concerned. Any further ex- escalation of the conflict is a red line for us. Hmm. Escalation in, in, in terms of spatial, escalation in terms of the intensity and the, the type of equipment involved is a red line for us. Um, so I want to move a little bit away from security issues and uh, talk a little bit about trade. and. Sure. Uh, of course, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement uh, has um, been in the works for some years now. Uh, this would be, a, a, for our listeners who aren't familiar, this would be a free trade agreement that encompasses the entire continent. Um, a, a number of, of uh, countries have ratified um, the, the protocols around it. Could you just give us an update on the progress uh, of both uh, getting all countries, all 54, uh, to, to ratify, and also the progress of implementation of the uh, agreements that countries have already uh, signed on to? Uh, uh, first of all, uh, I, I think there is a, a positive progress in as far as the, the evolution of the African free trade area is concerned. I think as we speak, Close to 43 countries have now signed on to it, and um, we are still counting. We hope that soon all may be able to sign on to it. What is imp- uh, impressive is that most of the, what we would call the big economies of Africa, have signed on to this. The opportunities that Africa's free trade area uh, bring on board is a one market. For those interested to trade with Africa, the difficulties of having to go from one border to the other, the the, the different taxation, the tax storms, and so on, will now be eliminated. So for us, we look at it as an opportunity to encourage intra-Africa trade, but also an opportunity for people outside Africa to take advantage of in order to be able to freely move capital, to freely move human labor across the whole continent. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I think, uh, you know, I'm really rooting for, for the free trade agreement. I think it's a wonderful idea. Uh, one of my concerns is there are regional economic communities, of course, on the continent, Kamesa, EAC, um, SADC. And those have never uh, fully integrated to the level that was envisioned when they were when they were formed. Uh, are you confident that the this continental free trade agreement, which is obviously a much more ambitious uh, project than even the regional economic communities, uh, can achieve that integration where the regional economic communities failed? Well, the intention is that. Um the the African free trade area should supersede the regional blocks. Uh, the regional blocks have been there for quite some time. It will take a bit of time for them to unwind and embrace 
the African free trade area. But I am confident that all of them see the value and the advantage of the African free trade area. And I am sure going forward, all of them will make sure that the agreements amongst themselves will incorporate the element of the African free trade area. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I certainly hope for a success yeah, for I the free that. trade agreement. Yeah, it would be a wonderful thing for the continent. Um, could you talk quickly, because uh, we're already starting to get to the end of our time, but yeah. talk quickly, if you would, about uh, Eastern DRC. We're going to move back to security yes, right. issues here. Um, and you've already talked a little bit about it with reference to ADF. Um, mm -hmm. But what a, um, there's so many armed groups in Eastern DRC. Um, M23, of course, is, is um, one of the more notorious rebel groups. You have My My Militias and, and every other sort of flavor of armed group under the sun in Eastern DRC. Uh, Uganda has been involved in, in DRC off and on for decades. Um, as you referenced, most recently returned in 2021. What is it going to take uh, in Eastern DRC to bring some level of, of stability and uh, development to that region? And then how is Uganda working towards that? What, what is Uganda's goals in, in Eastern DRC? And, and are you making progress towards those goals, would you say? Uh, first of all, thank you very much. It is true in Eastern DRC we have a multiplicity of rebel groups. In fact, in my last assessment, the count was 100 and still counting. Yeah. And that, in my view, is extremely disturbing. Uh, M23, as you pointed out, has been uh, an on and off. Uh, major player in the confusion in Eastern DRC, particularly in the Kivu uh, area. But I think it's also important to understand what is the struggle of M23. I think M23 basically, uh, without you know qualms and without mincing words, are Banyarwanda extraction. But they have lived in Congo for more than 200 years. Their struggle is to be accepted as Congolese and not to be ostracized as Banyarwanda. They must be accepted and they should be integrated in DRC as Congolese. And I think that is their main struggle. For me, that situation in DRC can be resolved if we give the regional uh, players a more significant role to play. Why? Because in my view, in my understanding, they understand the situation much better. They are the same people across the borders. They have the same cultures. So there is a lot of understanding. Uh, I mentioned a, lot, a short while ago when I was somewhere else that um, Recently, as late as July this year, the East African leaders got together and uh, put into place uh, a structure called the East African Intervention Force, which is now in the, in the state of formation to be able to play a part in silencing the guns in Eastern DRC. But we have also come to realize 
that military solutions alone may not be the answer to this problem. I think we have come to realize that we must now begin to look at other ways of bringing peace in this region other than military solutions. I am talking about to what extent can we be able to use culture to bring an understanding among the different communities in this region? To what extent can we bring education to bring the different players in this region? To what extent can the women as a, a different interest group bring uh, their expertise, their influence, they are become players in finding a solution in Eastern DRC. To what extent can we be able to use the youth to bring uh, benefits to finding a solution in the Eastern DRC? We are also now looking at to what extent can joint infrastructure programs between the different states in the in the in, in in that part of the in the region the great lakes including eastern drc to what extent can joint infrastructure development programs be able to engender peace in this region for example uganda and drc are now involved in a joint infrastructure development to build roads in the kivu region we are now involved in building 223 kilometer infrastructure, 221 kilometer road infrastructure in Eastern DRC. The thinking behind this is that the infrastructure will be a peace dividend. It will be able to create an appetite for the communities to ensure that peace and stability will continue for them to be able to benefit from this infrastructure development. It will be something they will own and have a reason to protect and in so doing ensure that peace, stability and security prevails in the region. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, I still remember the shock I experienced when uh, many years ago now, I learned that estimates for the number of lives lost in the Congolese wars maybe 4 million, maybe even 5 million. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's the costliest conflict in terms of lives lost since, since World War II. And uh, I suspect there's not many people in the world uh, outside of Africa probably who even are, are that cognizant of, of that fact, of, of just how costly the, the war has been, wars, I should say, in, in DRC. So uh, we certainly uh, hope and pray for, for peace and, and stability there. Um, so we're very nearly to the end of our time here. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, to note that we're uh, we're coming up on the 60th anniversary of of U.S.-Uganda diplomatic ties and, of course, Ugandan independence. Uh, so a, a big milestone. And right. um, just very briefly, tell us um, what we in the United States should understand about Uganda. Like, help us understand. Uh, your country a little bit better here in, in the next uh, two or three minutes. It, it's a tall task, I know, cause, right. but, um, but uh, wh what do we need to know and, and what do we get wrong about Uganda? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for, for, for raising that question. I think what is important to know is that Uganda is uh, 
the pearl of Africa. Uganda has, is the center. I, I keep telling people that uh, Uganda is uniquely placed. If you took a journey from the north, Alexandria, and you came down to Kampala, it is the same distance from Kampala to Cape Town. Now, if you took a journey from the east coast, Mombasa, to Kampala, it's the same distance from Kampala to Port Noir. So we are so centrally placed. And anybody interested in doing anything in Africa would better come to Kampala, come to Uganda, because you can be able to radiate to any part of Africa with ease. But having said that, Uganda is also a dynamically growing and evolving country. We are involved in ensuring that our democracy matures. We are, ensured, we are ensuring that our economy grows. And this is where we look at the partnership that we've had with the United States for the last 60 years, being able to continue to play an important role. I think time has come for us to now begin to have conversations, not necessarily around donor assistance, but conversations around trade partnerships, conversations around investment partnerships, conversation around growth in tourism in order to be able to bring in benefits to the communities in Uganda so that they, they should shed off the dependence mentality. Well, um, I, can, I can personally attest to the beauty of Uganda. I've, mm -hmm. I've been fortunate to visit several times. I, I told you earlier I went whitewater rafting in Jinja right, yeah. and uh, had, a, had a wonderful time. I came out uh, pretty waterlogged. Uh, I think I swallowed uh, a fair amount of the river, but um, yeah. it, was, it was a great trip. And I highly recommend it to, to any viewers uh, who want to go visit. It was, Can everybody it was come to Uganda, please? <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a free tourism plug for you. Um, but it is heartfelt. Uganda is a beautiful country. And, yeah. um, we really appreciate your time here this morning, or this afternoon, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, safe travels uh, as you head back tomorrow, I believe. And um, we hope that you'll come visit us again and, sure. and consider us friends here at the Heritage Foundation. I, I want to say thank you very much. I have had a wonderful, wonderful time in the US, uh, particularly here in Washington, because I've been able to, to talk to colleagues and friends in Pentagon, friends in State House, friends from White House, particularly in as far as uh, our relationship uh, regarding epidemics is concerned. I have been able to talk to friends in the business world, Boeing and others. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful time indeed being here for the last eight days. I, I look forward to continuing this kind of conversation, this kind of relationship, and I believe that is the only way forward. Indeed, I will be coming back very soon, and I would like to continue these conversations and these relationships and partnerships. Thank you so much for this opportunity to share with you a few views about my country and the region. Well, thank you, Mr. Minister. My pleasure. Indeed. And thank you to everyone for joining us online.